following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. In John 11, I think we see a very vital turning point in the book of John. In fact, I would consider that the events of John chapter 11 are the inciting incident for the whole book. Now, if you're not familiar with the term inciting incident, don't worry, neither was I. My wife had to tell me what it was. Uh, But an inciting incident is a, a literary term, and it describes the event or the happening in a story that changes the main character from the status quo or from their normal life and pushes them into the main plot or the main storyline in the story. And so you've got, you know, average Joe Bloggs in a movie and he's going about his business and suddenly, I don't know, a spaceship arrives and aliens start attacking and and suddenly he's pushed into the storyline. That is the inciting incident. And I think what we have in John chapter 11 is an inciting incident. Not that the first 10 chapters of John are introduction or anything. There's a lot going on there. But what I think you will find is when you look at the book of John, I mean, the fact that we are in chapter 11 now and we are about to start the passion narrative, you get the impression that the main storyline for John is the actions leading up to and including and following on from the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. That work, during what we call the passion narrative, is the main focus of what John is trying to get across. Everything that happens in the first 10 chapters, and especially all of the signs that we've been talking about throughout the series, they're pointing to the cross. They're pointing to the passion narrative. And this one is no different. But what I think we have here in John chapter 11 is the final straw, the last sign, the action that is going to switch Jesus from his normal routine through to the passion narrative. Have a look in verse 54, where it says, Jesus therefore no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. There's a shift here, isn't there? This is the point where Jesus goes from acting out his role as a public teacher, as a miracle worker, and shifting into the role, his primary role on earth, as fulfilling the work of the Messiah. This is the event that kickstarts the passion narrative. And so when you look at this story as a preview of the following events, you can see that what Jesus is doing here is he's playing out a dress rehearsal, if you will, for the passion narrative. It's no coincidence that right before this, in chapter 10, John has recorded Jesus talking about how he's going to lay down his life for his sheep. And then here in chapter 11, he raises someone from the dead. This is not coincidental. This is all very intentional. And not only do we get a a preview of what is about to happen, but what's really cool about John chapter 11 is we get a preview of how all of the people involved, all of the characters involved in the story, how they are going to act, not just here in chapter 11, but throughout the passion narrative as well. So we get a preview, a nice little uh, snippet, a teaser, if you will, of what's going to happen in the rest of the book of John. So I want to try something a little different this morning. Um, I want to, instead of having one main idea 
from the chapter that I want to share with you. What I want to do is I want to take a bit of a quick survey around all of the characters that are presented here in the story. Because each character, and we're going to give them a one-word descriptor that is going to shed a little bit of light on their role in the story, what's happening in the story, and more importantly, what kind of role they are going to play throughout the passion narrative. So it's going to be up on the outline uh, on the screen, and also you've got an outline in your bulletin. If you have a pen, I'd recommend getting it out and, and jotting it down real quick. We're going to have the name of the character and also the descriptor and a quick lesson. Each character brings their own unique lesson to the table as well, and we're going to hit on that at the end. So pens at the ready. We will get right into it. So the first character that we see in John chapter 11 are the disciples. And their word is hesitant. I feel a little bad for the disciples because they really get a bad rap in the Gospels, don't they? I mean, we really come down pretty hard on them for being pretty stupid. And I'm, I'm almost completely positive that if I was there and I was one of the disciples, I'd be completely lost as well. Okay, I'm not going to pick it up any quicker than anyone else. But when we read the Gospels and we look back, they really seem to miss the point a lot, don't they? I mean, they're just not on the same page. After all of the things Jesus has done up until this point, which has to include, I must say, at least two resurrections, okay, the disciples are still struggling to get on the same page as Jesus. They're still trying to figure out what it is that he's doing. And so when Jesus says in verse 8 that they should go out to Bethany to see Lazarus, they immediately put the brakes on. You don't want to go there. That's where they tried to kill you. You don't want that to happen, surely. And then in verse 11, uh, when he goes up, I think it's verse 11, when he goes up and he says he needs to wake up Lazarus, which, of course, had to be reminiscent of the language in Mark 5 when he raised Jairus' daughter. I'm going to wake her up. So they had to remember that. But they still don't get it, and they say, well, maybe he needs to sleep if he's sick, you know. And of course, none of this is surprising to anybody who's read the Gospels. And we see that they just seem to be on a different page, a different wavelength to Jesus. And I think the problem is, despite all of the miraculous things that Jesus has done, despite his supernatural presence, the disciples just can't seem to shake their earthly perspective, at least not yet. They will. And this is not going to change as the passion narrative plays out either. As everything unfolds with Jesus going to the cross, they don't get what's happening here. They don't understand why he's doing what he does. They don't understand why everything seems to be pushing towards his death. They miss the bigger picture of what's going on because they're stuck in the physical world around them. And they listen to us is one of example. We often resist or are hesitant to God's working in our lives because we cannot shake our earthly perspective. We, we get caught up in the everyday things in life, our jobs, our families, and, and all of these are good, and I'm not saying get rid of those things. But we often, we miss, or we forget to look or are blinded to or something, but we miss the majestic, supernatural existence of God all around us. We just don't see it. And so then when God comes to us and says, I want you to get involved in something big, it's too scary. It's too foreign to us. And so we hesitate. 
just like the disciples did. All right, moving on. Number two, the second character we see is Lazarus. And the word that we have for Lazarus is irrelevant. Poor guy. And this is nothing against the guy who, all, by all accounts, seems to be a top-notch guy. I mean, verse 5 says that Jesus loved Lazarus and his sisters, which seems to indicate that he had a personal friendship with them that he didn't necessarily have with everybody else. So by all accounts, he's a good dude. But despite the name, his name and the title of the story, it has absolutely nothing to do with Lazarus. In fact, from Lazarus' perspective, this story kind of stinks. I mean, think about this. I mean, he dies, and finally he gets to meet the creator of the universe, the man who he has been worshipping his whole life, the God he has been worshipping his whole life. And now he's sitting on a tropical beach that he never knew existed, and he's chomping down KFC and pineapple lumps, and he is having the absolute time of his afterlife. And then God rocks up to him and says, Ah, Lazarus, buddy, (laughs) bad news. I'm going to have to send you back. And so now he wakes up and he's in a dark tomb and he's covered in grave clothes, and, you know, he gets to see his sisters again, and that's great, but now he has to keep on working and pay taxes, and, and, you know... It's just not quite the same. Jesus didn't go to raise Lazarus from the dead for Lazarus' sake. It has nothing to do with Lazarus. Now, the lesson to us is a similar sort of reality check. As important to God as we are, we often overemphasize our own importance in the story. Let me rephrase this in a different way with a question. Do you think you are the most important character in your own story? Think about that. Number three, the next group of characters are the Jews. And their word is polarized. And this is not going to surprise many. And it says in verse 18 that because Bethany is so close to Jerusalem, there's a lot of Jews come down from Jerusalem to help with funeral processions and um, to help comfort Mary and Martha. So they get to become spectators to this whole event. And again, I don't think this is accidental. In fact, the fact that John references them specifically as the Jews came down from Jerusalem is to draw attention to the fact that they are here. And that's intentional. Especially given the fact that in chapters 9 and 10, Jesus has been having all of these conversations with the Jews about signs and wonders and paying attention. And so here again, they get miracles and signs by Jesus on display for them. And once again, their reaction is one of being polarized. Have a look, verse 36 and 37. When Jesus starts crying, they said, the Jews said, see how he loved them. But some of them said, well, could not he, he who opened the eyes of the blind stop this man from dying? Or check out verse 45. After the raising of of Lazarus, therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done, and that's not to brag about it. Some people like him and think he's the answer to their prayers. Other people think he's a lunatic and he's dangerous. Or he's a lunatic and he's dangerous. John does not present a middle ground here. He doesn't have a middle space 
for reactions to Jesus. And this is only going to be magnified over the following chapters. And you see the reaction to Jesus as he's on the cross. The reaction to Jesus as the tomb is empty polarizes people. And the lessons for us is this. The presence and the activities of Jesus in our lives causes a polarizing reaction. We often like to think of Jesus as like the fun guy at the party who everybody likes. Like when he walks into a room, everybody has this calming presence. Ah, that's not him at all. That's not Jesus. When Jesus walks into the room, some people find peace. Other people are spurned towards violence. And Jesus makes absolutely no apologies for this. Have a look at in uh, Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says, Do not suppose I have come to bring peace on earth. Huh? I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Not that they needed any help with that. But a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Now, it's not like Jesus takes a lot of pleasure in ripping families apart. But he knows that his presence in people's lives is so powerful. He knows that his call to allegiance is so absolute that it is going to draw people in different directions and it is going to rip them apart. Why do you think he says Christians don't marry non-Christians? He's not being a killjoy. He knows what's going to happen. A true understanding of who Jesus is and what he is doing, true understanding will polarize us. So the question, of course, then is, which pole do we gravitate towards? Now, our next two characters kind of reside at either end of this spectrum, this polarized spectrum. And the first we come across is Caiaphas. And Caiaphas represents all of the religious leaders in the Sanhedrin. And I think this is really interesting because the negative reaction to Jesus is perfectly summed up by this guy. At the end of the chapter, um, the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling body of the, of the people of Israel, they come together and they're trying to figure out what to do with this guy Jesus because he's causing all sorts of problems for them. And something needs to happen. So Caiaphas, he speaks up, and his little speech is very interesting. Have a listen to this again. Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. He said, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that whole nation perish. Now, this is the interesting part. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also the scattered children of God, to bring them together and to make them one. So from that day, they plotted to take his life. Think about this for a second. Caiaphas, the high priest that year, has been given a prophecy from God that spells out the mission and purpose of Jesus in a way that no one else gets. He gets a window into the purpose of God that is unique to him. The disciples don't even get that until well and truly along the path. And yet, to Caiaphas, he sets himself up against Jesus. He uses that prophecy somehow as a means to go out and kill him. 
I mean, think about this. The Sanhedrin, these are the people, these are God's people. These are God's guys on the ground. They are the best and brightest, the religious leaders, the, the priests. They, but more than anyone else in all of Israel, should have been the ones to recognize who Jesus was and to roll out the welcome mat for him. They should be the ones, every time he makes a sign, every time he does a miracle, every time he, he makes an Old Testament reference, they should be like, oh yeah, we get it. We get what you're doing, Jesus. This is great. And yet they become his biggest opposition. God is giving them miracles, signs, the presence of himself, and even a direct prophecy about what's going on. And yet all of that just seems to turn them against him. Because I believe that they have misdirected their attention. Instead of looking towards God, they have focused their attention so squarely on the Roman threat and their self-preservation as a people, as a nation, that they're missing what's going on. And so they are going to become murderers of the very Messiah that they have been longing for centuries to see. And the lesson to us is this, and I want you to catch this because this is very important. We can ask all we want for God to reveal himself. We can demand all kinds of miracles or religious experiences. We can demand proof of his existence. But if our hearts are not at least a little bit open to him, none of it's going to work. None of it's going to make any difference. In fact, all of the proof in the world of God's existence is only going to amplify the natural state of our hearts. If we have an openness to him, it will reveal God to us. But if we are close to him, it's only going to cement and solidify our resistance. And you only need to ask Pharaoh in Egypt in the story of Exodus about how that plays out. All right, number five, Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha's word is hurt. They kind of sit on the other end of the spectrum here. And with Mary and Martha, we get to the core of the why. Not only of this story, but also with the actions of Jesus in the following week. Why this is happening. See, their pain at Bethany with the death of their brother, it just yanks this whole passage out of abstract theological sort of discussion and brings it and plants it firmly in the middle of real life experience. Their pain was real. This is not just some one of life's little things, Lazarus dying. This was a true catastrophic event for Mary and Martha. They, were, they had become financially and socially vulnerable, and plus they had lost their dear brother. Their pain, they, had, they were taking on the pain that death brings. They become representatives of all of the pain that death holds over people. The overwhelming brokenness of all humanity in a physical and a spiritual sense. So they become, Mary and Martha become the ones that Jesus is doing this for, not just in chapter 11, but in the rest of the book. They become representatives of all of us for the reason Jesus is coming down. But the most striking lesson that these women teach us, and Martha in particular, is their reaction to Jesus. I want to read verses 21 to 27 again. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. 
Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, she answered. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. Could it be? Could it be here that Jesus is so emotional in this scene because right here in front of him, and this woman who has gone through one of the worst tragedies of life is the most pure and accurate expressions of faith that he has ever encountered. I mean, for all of the hesitancy and the misdirection and the polarization and the outright opposition that he has experienced from the best and the brightest, this woman, drowning in her own tears, gets it. She understands Jesus. She understands that this guy is the one. No matter what he does, no matter what, how this plays out, he is the one that I should be focused on. He is the one whose faith I should have. He is the one in whom I should give my life. She got it. So you want a model of pure faith to look up to? Martha's your girl. All right, now we get to Jesus. Our sixth character is Jesus, but he's kind of important, so he gets two words. I'm sure you'd be okay with that. First word is emotional, and I don't think we need much explanation why. This passage is famous across the universe for two simple words. Jesus wept. And man, we, we, we champion this passage. We think this, this is such a great passage because it highlights the true humanity of Jesus. And we say, we can relate to Jesus because, look, he's standing by the graveside and he cries just like we do. And that's great. Except I think we completely misunderstand this. I don't think the tears or the weeping of Jesus is a testament to his humanity. I believe it is a testament to his divinity. I believe he was weeping because he saw the pain and the brokenness of humanity. He saw the pain that death can bring to our lives and his divine soul grieved for us and with us. And that teaches us a very important lesson. God is not some robotic being devoid of emotion. I don't know where we get this idea that we attribute emotion to humanity and not to God. Where do you think we got it from? No, when we hurt, the God of the universe hurts with us to the point that He's willing to send His Son down to suffer a horrible death just so that His kids could be safe and happy. And so the why of the passion narrative is revealed, not in a theological discourse, but in a tear flowing down the face of God. If that was a dove, that would have been way cooler. (laughs) A little bit of timing on that one, please. Now, number seven, Jesus as intentional. 
And honestly, one of the things that stands out to me immediately in this passage is that there is absolutely nothing accidental happening here at all. Now, the people who witnessed uh, Lazarus coming out of the tomb, they would have probably been a little shocked. But the readers of the Gospel of John should absolutely not be. Nor should the disciples, but we've, we've already given them a hard time. We'll give them a break right now. We've already known right off the bat, verse 4, Jesus lays out his whole plan for this event. He gives a, a running narrative. He says, you know, we, I'm going to raise him from the, uh, like he says, this is not going to end in death. And then in verse 11, he starts getting a little bit more detail. I'm going to wake him up. This is important because as the next events start playing out in the passion narrative, the intentionality of Jesus does not wane, it intensifies. Everything that Jesus does, everything he says, is resolutely pointing him towards the cross. It is pushing him there. He is pushing himself there. So don't anyone think that Jesus did not know that he was going to be killed. If anyone thinks that Jesus is surprised by what's going on here or that he doesn't fully understand his role, they're not reading John correctly or at all. Everything Jesus does is intentional. He's not just some good teacher just plying his trade, trying to be a good guy and go about his business. No, I believe he is intentionally pushing himself, prodding people to get him to the cross. And I think he is intentionally playing out chapter 11 as a dress rehearsal for this, to get people's attention. And I believe he is intentionally bringing this out as the inciting incident to spur the people on to bring the passion narrative about. So don't think in your seat, don't think there, sitting there, that Jesus is passive in anything that he does. He is active throughout history, and he is active in our lives. At every point along the way, Jesus is constantly reminding us that everything he does is to point us to him. So what is our lesson? Pay attention. Pay attention to what God is doing because he's not just doing it for no reason. It is all pointing to a purpose, to the glory of God. All right, so we have here these six characters, these seven words highlighting the events in chapter 11 and providing us with this fantastic preview of the way that the passion narrative, the story of Jesus' death and, and resurrection is going to play out. And so here's what I want to do. Here's your little homework assignment. And hopefully you've, you've had a chance to write some of these down. There are seven different words, seven different lessons that I've given you. And guess how many weeks, days of the week, guys? Seven different days of the week. So here's what I want you to do. Every day I want you to read John chapter 11 from the perspective of each of these different characters. Put yourself in their shoes. Look at it through their eyes. Have a look at what they teach us and their experience. And if you're really game, have a read of the passion narrative as well from their perspective. And each day, let's learn a little bit more about how people reacted or what was going on and how we can live our lives stronger because of it.
Let me pray. Lord, I just thank you so much for giving, this, giving us this rich picture of what you were doing, not just with Lazarus, which was a fantastic story in and of itself, but, but the way that you are playing out your role on earth and showing us what you're about to do over the next uh, 15-odd chapters of, of John and giving us a, a preview of the, what you do in our lives. So help us to take on these lessons, these, these perspectives from the different characters. Help us to illuminate your word even stronger and to illuminate your work in our lives as well. We love you and it's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.